Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, and we pray, Lord, this morning you would show us Christ, show us our Savior in your word, and especially as we think through what the real gospel is, I pray that it become clearer in our hearts so that it might encourage our worship and our faith. To you be the glory. We thank you and praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here, a grace to worship with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Now, all the things I just said are pretty typical on a Sunday morning, but imagine instead of opening prayer and a welcome and a turn with me to Galatians, I just walked up here and I said, okay, we, we have to talk, right? Uh, you would probably ready yourself for a pretty serious discussion, thinking like maybe what did we do? By the way, if you're new to the church, I've, I've never done that. So if you're thinking, oh, this is not that morning, I'm just using this as an illustration. But I'm sure that you've experienced those we have to talk moments. One time in our first year of marriage, at this point, I don't think Jen had ever seen me cry. I don't think she'd ever seen me show emotion. So we're pretty early in marriage here. I was, I was in the kitchen, and I was cooking dinner, and I was cutting onions, and I am just weeping, okay? So, so I think this is going to be funny, and I walk out to the living room, and I say, Jen, we need to talk. And she almost cried on the spot. Like, you, the look on her face, hilarious, right? So if you're a newlywed, probably not a first-year joke, right? Maybe I would wait. Like, if you're 20 years in, I would go for it. It's pretty funny. So you, you probably need some excitement. But Galatians is Paul's we-have-to-talk letter. There is a certain gravity to it. In fact, most of Paul's letters open with a brief encouragement, and they weren't just pleasantries. They were these, these expressions of heartfelt gratitude for the different people and the churches he was writing to. Think of Philippians that Alessandro preached through a few weeks ago. Philippians 1, 3-5, Paul writes this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I mean, it's beautiful, right? Imagine how it must have felt for the Philippians that this apostle of God, that he was thankful for them. And again, Paul often did this at the beginning of his letters. He's writing to churches and to people that he loved. He wants to encourage them. Even in his first letter to the Corinthian church, where he has to address some pretty serious uh, sins, I mean, I mean, things that would, you know, dark, that would make our modern culture blush, even for them, he starts off with a word of encouragement. But here in Galatians, Paul kind of jumps right into it. There is no commendation, just this warning and even rebuke. I mean, after briefly discussing the, the gospel in the first five verses, what we'll look at this morning in verse six, look what he says. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right? He's saying, like, I, I just can't believe that you've already turned away from God, right? It's not subtle, but understand that the gravity of this letter is not because of how little Paul cared for the Galatian churches, but how much he cared for them. He has this, we need to talk moment because the danger infiltrating their church was actually more dangerous than just sinful people, right? Every church has that. We're all sinful people. It was bad theology. It was a false gospel and this is significant because a false gospel is a fatal gospel. Now, we'll look at that more in a moment, but first, just a bit of background. Paul likely wrote to the churches in southern Galatia. That would be modern-day Turkey. I don't know if that helps you. It doesn't help me, really, but 
I know, we'll just say that. It's modern day Turkey. And that he, and he had established these churches on his first missionary journey. But by the time he writes, false teachers had entered the church teaching a compromised gospel. They've often been called Judaizers, and, and specifically, they were a group who professed to be Jewish Christians, but they were arguing that Christians still need to live according to the Mosaic law, and the Gentiles, or, or non-Jews, had to be circumcised in order to really be saved. So obviously, I would love to go into great detail about circumcision, uh, PowerPoint, that kind of stuff, but we're so short on time, so we're just going to keep going. But just know that it was a, an Old Testament mark of the covenant, but in a sense, they were arguing that Gentiles had to be converted not only to Christianity, but really to Judaism. The idea being that these Judaizers were claiming you needed to, to, to believe in Jesus and live according to the Old Testament law. But again, when you add something to the gospel, it takes away from the gospel. As we discussed last week, a compromised gospel is a counterfeit gospel. Now, this may not sound like it has much to do with us because as we think of the dangers of the world, circumcision doesn't seem to be an issue. Imagine being a cult and in and, and, and a cult and saying, hey, to join us, you need to be circumcised. Let's just say that's a pretty tough sell. It's probably why it's not happening too often. But realize that circumcision was just an example of false gospels. And that's why Paul himself kind of broadens the application when he says this in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now we'll look at that next week, but he's concerned with any supposed gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Christ as found in scripture. In other words, he's not just worried about one particular theological miscue, but any version of a false gospel. And and not only that, but just as an exercise in hermeneutics, and by that I mean how we study the Bible, we have to remember that, that most of the New Testament epistles were, written, were speaking to very specific issues of the church or the culture at the time. But this doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to us, but rather we have to discern what are the timeless biblical principles that God intends for us to know and to live out. And one principle we learn from Galatians is this, any false gospel is a dangerous gospel. It could be circumcision, or it could be some other religion, or it could simply be the world's embracing of its own version of the happily ever after. Whatever takes the place of Christ as our Savior is a false gospel, and that's a dangerous gospel. Now, with this in mind, let me read to you our passage. We will look at just the first five verses, Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is Paul's introduction, as I mentioned earlier, whereas normally this would be followed by some aspect of thankfulness. In verse 6, he, he really takes them to task for considering a false gospel. But these first five verses actually kind of set that up because there is brief introduction to the real gospel. But he's setting up the idea that in a world of false gospels, the real gospel is what they must hold on to. And that becomes our key idea. We, we have to remember that in a world of false gospels, only the real gospel saves. In a world of false gospels, only the real gospel saves. So what I want to do this morning is look at the real gospel. 
Okay, so if you're gonna be uh, aware of the counterfeits, the very first thing you should do is start looking at the real thing. If you can clearly recognize what is real, then you'll more easily recognize what is fake. It's kind of like if I wanted you to recognize our worship leader, Daichi, I wouldn't start off by showing you everyone else in the church and saying, it's not him. Like, you know, it's not him, and it's not him, and it's not him. I would just show you Daichi and make sure that you know what he looks like, and that would be the best place to start. So let's look at uh, what the real gospel looks like. We'll look at four facets of the real gospel. The real gospel is rooted in real truth. So here we need to ask ourselves the question, who is preaching its version of truth to my heart? Now we would like to say it's the Bible, it's, it's our source of truth, but if we're honest, there are many voices in our lives and this is a concern to Paul, and that's why he begins his letter like he does, verses one and two. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now the Galatians know who Paul is. They know he's an apostle. Why is he reminding them of this? I feel like every week or two, we have some story in the news where some famous, someone famous, uh, someone in a position of power asks the question, do you know who I am? Right, it might be a politician or a movie star who's in trouble with the law. They ask that question, like, do you know who I am? Hoping that if the person realizes just how special they are, they won't get into trouble. As you read this, is this Paul's kind of indignant, do you know who I am moment? No. He's reminding them of who he is because he's establishing the authority of his message. And one of the things he has to do in this letter is defend himself because the false teachers were accusing him of not really preaching a true gospel. So while they were the ones actually adding to the gospel and so compromising the gospel, they were actually claiming that Paul preached an incomplete gospel. Like I mentioned, they, didn't, they believed it wasn't enough to just trust in Jesus. That's what Paul was preaching. You also needed to live according to the Old Testament law. And so Paul needs to emphasize the truth of his message, which means arguing for the authority of the messenger. I remember when I was a kid, one of my brothers might come out and say, hey, time to come in for dinner, or you need to clean your room. And what would I do? Would I, would I come in and clean my room or, or whatever? Of course not. Like I would act like they didn't even exist. Like they, they, I, what, why are you talking to me? Right? This is my less, less sanctified days. So... But then they would say those words, those words that have such power, dad says, you need to come in. And what would I do? I would come in, right? Because I may not have been sanctified, but I wasn't dumb, right? So, so you come in. Well, well, Paul here, that's why Paul says that he's an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is his dad says argument. And it's a powerful one. I mentioned last week that, that Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road when he was converted, and that appearance and his subsequent calling into ministry was very significant. Biblically speaking, there are apostles with a little a who are, who are messengers in a sense of the gospel, but to be an apostle, like with a big A, as in the 12 apostles, one very important factor was that you had to have seen Jesus in person. This, this is one of the reasons there aren't modern-day apostles in the same sense as the original 12 and Paul is telling them that he is an apostle with a big A who has been commissioned by God himself. So while these Judaizers apparently had no credentials or else we likely would have, been, would have read about them, Paul's saying that he's been sent by God himself. And not only that, but he says, to all the brothers who are with me, in other words, he's not alone in the message he brings. It's been confirmed by the saints. But here's the point. The Judaizers who were trying to lead them astray, they didn't have authority. They're, they're making their arguments, 
But when he speaks, when he writes, he does so as the very mouthpiece of God. They could trust what he said to them because it's what God himself wanted them to hear. So first thing this does is remind us that scripture, those truths given us to us by God himself through his chosen spokesmen like Paul and the apostles and the prophets, it's the only source of truth that is absolute when it comes to matters of life and faith. I think some might call us a conservative church for whatever that means because of our views on things, everything from the gospel to our embracing of biblical counseling to the roles of men and women to our reformed view of salvation to our understanding of ethics. But I really think the better descriptor for us is that we're simply trying to be as biblical as possible. Scripture is our authority, meaning that we really feel as if we have no choice but to believe its truths and do what it says, whether or not it's popular in the culture or even in our own church. The Bible is our authority. Now, what does this mean for us on a practical day-to-day level? It means we hold to the word of God. We, we study it. We know it. We live by it. But with that, importantly, we're then on guard against the lies of the world. Now, that may sound like it, it's just common sense, like what you would expect to hear at a church, but what, why this is significant is because whether we realize it or not, we're constantly being bombarded by the world's understanding of truth and the preaching of its gospels. It's constantly giving us its version of reality, telling us what we need to be or have or do or believe to be happy. Those are its gospels. And it has so, so many preachers whether through advertisements on TV, social media posts, articles on our feed, the way our coworkers or classmates talk, even friends and family, they're often offering sermon after sermon, encouraging us to pursue the world, to be happy and satisfied. And even as Christians, despite what we might say about the evils of the world, we're kind of tempted to buy in. So sure, you may stand firm against some of the culture's lies about morality, but consider something uh, more subtle, like money and possessions. We're tempted to believe the world's gospel that money is security and its identity and its pleasure. That's what we build our future on. And with these beliefs, we start to live differently. We also live as owners of what we have and not stewards. We hold to the world's gospel of self that looks at what we have and thinks, well, well, me first. And again, we're constantly being given that version of truth. Think about the news, the the internet, the social media, our parents, our friends. The message is so constant, so consistent that we don't think twice about being a Bible-believing Christian and not being generous. And then scarily, we pass that gospel on to our our children, giving them the belief that money is a means to, to security and happiness. In other words, we become the world's preachers of a self-centered, money-based gospel. I mean, I think for some of our kids, while we warn against things like drugs and certain forms of worldly living, they have never been told about generosity with our money. They've never been told why we give to the church and why we try to support ministry and why we try to help those in need. And yet, as I've mentioned in the past, how many of our kids are in danger of walking away from God because of licentious living? Right, some, I'm sure. But how many more of our kids are just going to go to college, pursue the world's version of success, and eventually just walk away from God? And if that happens, we should be saddened and we should be grieved, but we should probably not be surprised. They are just living by the gospel they heard or saw in their own homes. 
And it's not just our kids, but, but the world's gospel of money affects so much of what we do. Just this week, I was, I was having this discussion with one of our pastors and then separately with my wife about why more people don't want to go into full-time ministry, right? I'm, I'm so thankful to be a pastor. I, and though it's hard, it's this unique blessing to work every day with people you want to be with doing what you believe matters. It's, it's kind of crazy thing to me that I get paid to do what I love with people I love for the God I love. Now, needless to say, not everyone is called into full-time ministry, but I don't think enough people even consider it. And though there's different reasons, I think one of them is the cost, right? You may not be able to live the life you've always dreamed would make you happy. Combine this with other false gospels, the world's gospel of personal comfort and personal fulfillment and personal priorities. And it's not too surprising that not many people are thinking about the ministry, and the challenge again is this, that the preachers that are all around us that are, all, are never preaching things like, you should go into the ministry. So taking a step back, here's the thing. Money is just one example of a false gospel. They're everywhere. So again, to our point, what are your sources of truth? What are presenting to you worldviews? What is making arguments for reality? And are you listening to them? Now, one simple step we can take to guard against false gospels is to be aware of the false preachers. Again, we need to ask ourselves, like, who is preaching its version of truth to my heart? And like I mentioned, they're all around us. For example, just because something comes from a news feed doesn't mean it isn't presenting a false gospel, right? A false gospel, after all, is just someone's version of good news. It shouldn't be surprising they show up on news feeds, but think about surfing on the net, your discussions with classmates and coworkers and teammates. Who are the false preachers of who are the preachers of the false gospels in your life? Well, since I've already touched on money, you might as well make more people uncomfortable. Let's deal with our overcrowding issues in one sermon and let's talk about social media because I think there there's there isn't really any question that social media is currently one of the world's greatest and most powerful preachers. I mean, think about it. The truths it, it tries to offer, the, the, the reality it's attempting to paint, the gospel it offers for salvation. Right, social media offers its view of joy and, and what relationships you need to have or what vacation you need to take or what possessions you need to own to really enjoy the good life. Social media offers its vision of beauty that promises love or, or relationship or admiration. Social media offers its view of justice and virtue and righteousness and how we can be a good person if you just believe certain things about others or you live in a certain way. And it's endless. Now you've heard me say that often, I don't think social media is evil in and of itself, but at the same time, most of us don't consider enough the dangers of it for ourselves or for our kids. Again, it just offers so many false gospels and people kind of soak it in. Because you know that the world is far, more, is far better at its personal devotions and media consumption than most Christians are with our personal devotions in the word of God. And scarily, most Christians are probably more committed to their personal devotions in social media than they are to the word of God. And what we have to realize is that it's not just about like what consumes our time, it's about what version of truth is getting preached to our hearts. I mean, think of our kids. As our kids scroll for hours, should it then be surprising that they have a certain understanding of something like beauty and attractiveness? At some point, it becomes pretty easy to buy into the world's false gospel of what it says about appearance. And then it should not surprise us that they then struggle with things like body image 
or it leads to eating disorders, or why they want to dress in a certain way that highlights the, the world's view of beauty, or why they feel unloved, or why they don't know who they are at times. But often they're, they're doing more than just looking through pictures. They're scrolling for a savior. And while we may get our kids to church and youth group for a few hours a week, we're still allowing social media to preach to their hearts for so many more hours a week. And the world's preaching is just so relentless. All right, talked about some money, social media. So plenty of seats in the sanctuary next week for those of you who are out in the NPR. You just, they're probably gonna be all over the place. But, but hopefully you understand the bigger picture. As Christians, we would say God's word is truth. We have to be wary of how many of uh, the false truths, um, uh, the, but we still have to be wary of the many false truths that the world offers. So again, the question I, I want you to really ask yourself is who is preaching its version of truth to my heart? The Bible given to us by the, the prophets and the apostles has the only true gospel and we have to cling to it. All right, point number two, the real gospel deals with the real enemy. So here we need to ask the question, practically, what do I see as being the greatest danger? In other words, if the gospel is the good news about a savior and some version of salvation, we have to understand that we're, what are we being saved from? When it comes to false gospels, one simple reality is that they don't get to the real problem. Think of some of our culture's explanation of what is the issue. The problem is not being your authentic self. The problem is societal constructs that lead to misuse of power. The problem is bad biology and bad genetics that can be blamed for so many of our issues. The problem is other people. The problem is poverty or lack of education. And yet, even if we can kind of recognize the good and the bad of these ideas, we can still miss what the real issue is. Because for most of us on a day-to-day -day level, we often just see the big problems as being suffering and, and bad circumstances. In other words, the real problems of life are the difficulties I face. My problem is that I lost my job, or I'm not married, or my kids are hard to raise, or my health is not good, or whatever. And honestly, a lot of these are, are really bad things, like the problems in our society are bad, uh, the trials of daily life are bad, they can be serious issues, but none of them get to the real enemy. That enemy is sin and the fallenness of the world. Look what Paul writes in verse four. He said, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So first of all, Paul does acknowledge that the present evil age is an issue that we need to be delivered from. And that's what some in American Christianity have really focused on, right? The evils of our society. But Paul's solution isn't for Christians to go to war against the culture. His solution is the gospel. Because the gospel gets to the real issue, the sin um, in our lives and the fallenness of our world. Again, understand sin is the greatest enemy. Now, as Christians, we should know that sin is the problem, but we, we should slow down too and just really consider it maybe at a deeper level. Sin is the bad things we do, but do we really understand how serious it is? Because sin isn't just like isolated acts of wrongdoing. Think of sin as always being in relation to God. Cornelius Platica wrote this. He said, all sin has first and finally a Godward force. This is because sin is not only the breaking of law, but the breaking of a covenant with one savior. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to, one who, to whom one is joined by a holy bond. That's why our sin deserves eternal punishment. 
We haven't just done something wrong. It's not about mistakes or little offenses. We've rebelled against our maker. And our God, who is holy and righteous and just, he cannot simply overlook these things because otherwise he would not be holy and righteous and just. And that's why Paul says that for Jesus to save us, he would have to give himself for our sins. If God's going to rescue us, it would mean delivering us from the sin that leads to punishment. So at the most fundamental level, regardless of what the world thinks wrong, our greatest problem is sin and judgment. Like if you don't know Christ, you may think this sounds harsh or, or judgmental or, or pessimistic. And yet understand, like I said in the last point, I, I don't get to simply preach popular messages. Like I have to preach the truth. And the simple reality is all of us, like every person in this room, we are sinners and we need a savior. We'll talk more about the savior in a moment, but I hope you think through that for your own life. Now, the danger of sin should be pretty obvious, but realize that sin is not just about what happens when we die and meet God, but sin, it kind of explains the wrong in, with our world. And we need to understand this because beyond the fact that sin breaks our relationship with God, it's at the root of all the bad things that go on around us. So it's why we have ongoing, challenging home situations, financial difficulties, the pain of loneliness, strained relationships with loved ones, athletic or academic or occupational failure. That's why we have divorce and chronic pain and broken friendships and the ruin of cancer and infertility and disability and natural disasters and losing a loved one of a family member. And that's why Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Does it make sense? Paul's not oblivious to the suffering we face. And so he wants us to know that the gospel isn't just the good news for eternal life, but the good news for everyday life. Now, what this doesn't mean is that God shields us from the problems of this world. But as we'll see in the next point, it means that the gospel not only deals with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And one day, it will deliver us from the presence of sin altogether. But this is important because the real danger of sin isn't the sufferings of this world. It's not the, the challenges of life or the trials you face. It's not the difficulties that seem to plague you. The danger of sin is that it moves you away from God. It turns your heart away from him. It, 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 it draws your gaze towards your idols. It weakens faith and hope. The power of the gospel then is not that it takes the problems of life away, at least not until eternity, but it frees us from sin's power. So despite what is happening, I trust in God. I'm close to God. I know the love of God. And I can live with courage and hope and joy. The power of the gospel is not that it takes away our problems, but it means I have a savior who walks with me and who's in me and, who, and, and, and through those problems, he can even use them for my good and for his glory. Before we talk more about our savior, let me encourage you to ask yourself again, practically, what do I see as the greatest danger? Like, or, or maybe think of it this way. As you went through this last week, what did you feel were the real problems? Maybe it was sin. It was your kid's sin or your spouse's sin or your coworker's sin. Maybe it was a challenging trial that you don't see the end of. Maybe it was the feeling of burnout. Maybe it was a broken relationship. Realize that while these are real challenges, as Christians, we can respond in faith, love, and even joy because the gospel frees us from the power of sin. To appreciate that, let's look at the next point. The real gospel offers a real savior. 
The question we should ask ourselves for this point is, who or what am I hoping will save me? Like, what will make life right? We'll fix things. Now, right away, and this is what we'll discuss over the coming months, understand there are two things that definitely can't save us. The world can't save us, and we can't save ourselves, for example, through our efforts. So the world can't save us, right? The world promises happiness and wholeness and authenticity and freedom and power and identity and security, but it can't actually give us what we need because it can't address the sin of our lives. Like we discussed, sin is the problem. It can't bring freedom from the penalty of sin. It can't bring freedom from the power of sin. And it can't ultimately bring freedom from the presence of sin. And second, we can't save ourselves. This in part is what Paul is addressing. No amount of good behavior is going to address the problem that we are, as sinners are facing. <clears throat> sin owns us and we are powerless against it. So keeping the Old Testament law can't save. In fact, as Paul will point out later in the letter, the purpose of the law was never to save. Ultimately, it was always to lead us to God, to lead us to our Savior. And we have different terms to describe this wrong belief that we can save ourselves. And, and so you'll probably hear, hear these over the coming year as we, we look to this letter, but you've likely heard of the term like self-righteous. And often we think, we describe that as someone who thinks they're so good, like, oh, they, they think they're so great, they're so self-righteous. But biblically, self-righteous is the idea of someone who believes they're righteous or right with God on their own, right? So to be righteous before God means you're in a right relationship with him, and to be self-righteous means we do that based on our own actions. So for the Judaizers, that, that was the picture that was, yeah, Jesus saves, but it's not really enough, so you kind of need to save yourself after that. You need to be good. You need to carry out the law. Similar is the idea of legalism. Again, you've likely heard that term. Now, often we think of legalism as like having too many rules or holding to rules too tightly. So, for example, you might say if you had rules on drinking or how to dress, then you're legalist. Now, this isn't necessarily true, and that's because the problem isn't rules, but what the rules are meant to accomplish. Legalism is about earning one's righteousness or even sanctification through keeping the rules, even man-made ones. As one author writes, Legalism is the religion of human achievement that argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works. And along with this is often the idea of imposing extra biblical man-made rules on others to kind of measure their spirituality. So it's not just about how I live, but you need to live like me or else you're not as spiritual. I like the way Tony Miranda and David Platt describe it in their commentary. Legalism is working in our own power according to our own rules to earn God's favor. But again, this falls short because our works are never enough. We need a savior. We'll discuss this as we go. But this is why Paul, before he dives into the false gospels, makes sure they understand who the real savior is. Verses three and four. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So he's directly contrasting the false teachers in the Galatian churches who are arguing that for forgiveness of sins, you need Jesus plus good works. And, he, and he's saying, uh, right? But he's saying, no, it's only through faith in Jesus. So how does Jesus save? As Paul will elaborate, Jesus saves us by living the perfect life we were unable to and then going to the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve. As he writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, right? Meaning our response isn't to try harder to save ourselves, but to trust in Jesus who actually saves. 
As Paul writes in, in chapter two of verse 16, yet we know that the person is not justified. They're not made right by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He does it all. The idea being only Jesus saves because only Jesus can deal with the problem of sin. And we have to remember too that this isn't just about forgiveness. It's not just about getting to heaven, but as Paul writes, Christ delivers us from this present age. The gospel matters right now with what you're going through right now because it means no longer are we prisoners of the world's darkness. When you think about what went wrong this last week, think about how those times that sin feels like it owns you. Do you remember how Paul describes us before we're saved? He doesn't just say we're sinners going to hell. He describes it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's saying before we, before we were saved, long before we, we meet God in judgment, we, we've embraced the world's beliefs, we've lived in its darkness, we follow its wickedness, we are prisoners to its influence. So though the world presents itself as life, it's really only offering death. But again, like I said, the gospel doesn't just then free us from the penalty of sin, like I'm forgiven, but it frees us from the power of sin. That's how he delivers us from this present evil age. And it doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist or that sin no longer tempts us, but we're not helpless against it. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we walk in step with that spirit, our lives can be transformed. As Paul writes in chapter five, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I don't have to live out the sin in my life. And then later in that same chapter in verses 22 and 23, he talks about the fruit of the spirit. We can live lives of joy and peace. I read it last week, but let me just read it to you again because I want us to see how transforming the gospel is. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? That is what the gospel can do in our lives. That's why the gospel transforms us. And so God delivers us from this present evil age by delivering us from the power of sin in our lives and allows us to live wholly differently. Now, again, this all becomes a warning against the false saviors the world offers. But, but with this, it would be easy to simply come down hard on the world and its idolatry. But I actually think the one thing this should do is help us to understand better where the world is coming from and even deepen in us a sense of compassion and a renewed commitment to evangelism. So for example, as Christians, we would disagree with the world's view of sexuality and gender because it goes against clear biblical truth. But we should consider from more than just the perspective of kind of truth and lie, we need to realize that it's also about a false gospel. It's about a savior and salvation. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine you don't have Jesus. Imagine you don't have the hope of forgiveness and grace and love and eternal life. Imagine you aren't happy. Maybe you even hate who you are or you wish that you had something else. What would you do? You would seek happiness somewhere. And so as we think why someone might hold so tightly to the world's view of gender or sexuality, for example, think of it like this. If someone told you the only way you will ever be happy is if you get to be the real you, 
Or the only way that you will ever be happy is if you get to live out your sexual desires. What would that do to you? Like, how would you feel? What would you, what would you be tempted to believe? What would you seek after? For those struggling, it often isn't simply about holding to a viewpoint. They're clinging to a savior. And just as we are passionate in our love for our Savior, and we are passionate when he is attacked, the people in the world will do the same thing. They don't see Christians as simply holding to a different set of beliefs or arguing for some biblical view of morality. They see us as attacking their Savior, that which they hold dear, the only thing that seems to promise a version of salvation that will ever make them happy. I mean, understand, people long so much for a savior that they will believe uh, just about anything and do just about anything to have one. And what this means is that we still hold tightly to a biblical ethic, but we have to consider to what purpose? Not simply to pursue morality. Moral unbelievers are still condemned unbelievers. But because holding a biblical ethic means we are telling the world there is only one savior. We are trying to lovingly say and demonstrate that only Jesus offers what people long for. Only Jesus offers hope and help. Only Jesus offers eternal life. And conversely, when we capitulate, when we, when we think we're just saying things like, well, let's live and let live, or do what makes you happy, or it doesn't really hurt anyone, as some Christians would claim, we're really telling someone who's desperately in need of Jesus, you can be happy with another savior. You don't really need God which means holding tightly to a biblical ethic isn't meant to be an act of war against sinners, but an act of compassion for a world lost without Christ. We are saying, even when it costs us so much in the world's eyes, that Christ is the only one who saves. And it affords us the beautiful opportunity to be compassionate with the world. If it weren't for grace, we would be pursuing our own false saviors. So the fact that we know the true Savior is only his kindness, meaning there is no room for arrogance or anger, only humility and brokenheartedness. And this falls in line with 1 Peter and the rest of Scripture. Our interaction with the world isn't primarily to argue for morals because morality is a false gospel, but to show that only Jesus saves and the world's broken sense of morality simply highlights that. So backing up, what, what does this mean practically? Like on one hand, as we look to out, uh, outside of ourselves, we should hold to a biblical ethic and preach a true gospel with Jesus as the only way to salvation. He, not any version of morality, needs to be the heart of our message. But more personally, we need to consider the false saviors we hold on to, the ones that lead us away from truly trusting in Jesus. Again, sin is what draws us away from God. Sin is what makes us miserable. Sin is what leads to responding in fear and anxiety. Sin is what leads to anger and bitterness. Sin is what robs us of hope. But the gospel frees us from the power of sin. So with the gospel, we no longer have to live under its influence. We don't have to do its will. We are prisoners to its power. We can move forward in faith, trusting that God is sovereign even over the struggles of this world. And so in Christ, we have hope. All right, point number four, last idea here. The real gospel is about real glory. The real gospel is about, we, we need to be about God's glory. I would hope that my life is about God's glory, but I, I know that my heart is often drawn elsewhere. I was thinking about it recently. 
Like I'm worried that I'm more known for my love of Mexican food or whatever than my pursuit of God's glory. And that was highlighted this summer because we had these summer interns. And at the close of the summer program, they wrote some haikus for the staff. Okay, that's not a requirement. That was not us. They just decided to do this first time. One of mine was this, tacos, Pastor Kim. Not a foodie, can't be staff, lives for God's glory. And I feel like that last line was just tagged on. Like the first one, there was like conviction. Like, I don't even know, like tacos, Pastor Kim, there's no verb in there. I don't know what that means, what that, um, so when I read that, I, I, I feel like they believe I love tacos. They believe that you're probably not gonna join our staff if you don't love food. God's glory, hopefully. You know, that's, that's what I felt like. But, but though I'm sure Paul would have been a lover of tacos, I'm sure he is now, because he's in heaven, so he definitely loves tacos now. He tells us that life is ultimately about God's glory. And so here's the question we need to ask ourselves for this. Who is really at the center of my world? Right? It doesn't take much to see that we live in a people-centered society. Every version of the world's understanding of humanity begins and ends with us. According to a secular view of life, we're, we're at the center of life. And though as Christians, we would want to denounce this. In reality, it's tempting to hold a similar view because of the sinful bent of our hearts. So for example, the sinful bent leads to a pharisaical streak in us that is why we struggle with things like legalism and self-righteousness. But that sinful bent is also why we struggle with other false gospels. Because in the end of life, it's often really about our glory. I wanna succeed, I want good circumstances, I want achievement because I want my glory, I'm about me. But Paul makes clear that salvation and really all of life is about God's glory. In referring to God, he says this in verse five, to whom, so, so to God, be the glory forever and ever, amen. Glory is the idea of honor. It's about who is acknowledged and who gets credit. It's who is worshiped and adored. And Paul is saying that God is the only one who receives glory in the true gospel. To him, be the glory forever and ever. He deserves the glory because he has accomplished every bit of salvation. So why does Paul bring up glory here? Is it kind of like Christian pleasantries? Like we say, amen. He's saying, well, to God be the glory. Well, first of all, it's important because God deserves the glory. Like if we save ourselves, we actually deserve glory, right? But if he saves us completely, and then we try to take credit for that, we shockingly and disturbingly, we become these glory thieves. I mean, imagine as a parent, your, your child telling people, my parents love me because I'm a really good kid. I clean my room, I do well in school, I speak nicely to my siblings, and if I'm really good, they'll love me even more, and they might do nice things for me. Not only would it be wrong, but it really is an offense to your character. It would kind of solely the love you've shown them and say a lot more about them than about you. This is kind of what the, the Jews were doing. The God of the universe had said, I will love you out of my own choosing because I'm more merciful and kind than you can possibly imagine. And Israel saying, well, we kind of deserve your love. You know, we, we, we're obedient and we do religious ritual. We can't be glory thieves. More than anything, God deserves the glory. Not only that, but reminding us of God's glory is important because it's foundational to Paul's arguments against the false gospels of human works. All right, because if any way we are responsible for our salvation, even partially, then we deserve glory. But if only God receives glory, then necessarily it means that God has done all the work. But what I want us to really consider is this. When we rightly acknowledge the glory of God in salvation, we are encouraged to rightly trust God for all of life. That makes sense? I mean, if God only partially saves us, then is he really trustworthy? If I have to make up the difference in what is lacking in the gospel, is he worthy of my faith? If, if I have to turn to the world's saviors, 
Is he someone I can really look to for help and hope? But if God gets all the glory because he's fully responsible for salvation, if in the gospel he freed us from the power of sin and rescued us from this evil world, if in the gospel he demonstrates his incredible love and power, his kindness and sovereignty, his mercy and compassion, then he is worthy of our trust. God's glory is the foundation of our faith. He is fully deserving of glory, and so he's fully deserving of our trust. And really, this is such a practical idea because when life is about me and my glory, that is a heavy burden to bear. That is a task too great. That is a race I cannot win. But if I believe God is at the center of the world, the one deserving of all glory because he has done everything for me in the gospel, then I just get to rest. I can live by faith. I can trust in what he does in my life. All right, let me close with this. At the beginning, I mentioned that Galatians is Paul's we need to talk letter. So imagine for a moment, what if he wrote a letter to Lighthouse? What would it be like? What would be his concerns? What false gospels would he warn against? Or think more personally, what if he wrote a letter to you? or to you and to your family, what, what would it contain? Like, would he warn against the false gospel of money or success or relationships or education? I think for most of us, we realize that if, if Paul wrote us a we-need-to-talk letter, it would be a very hard read. It would indict the worldly preachers we listen to. It would expose our false idolatries and our false hopes. It would condemn our self-righteousness and our legalism. It would show the darkness of our false glories. I mean, it would be difficult to get through. If we read with an honest understanding of our lives, I think it would hurt to the very core. But if we also read it with humility, it would mean so much more. I mean, if we read knowing who was writing it, if we read it to understand better the gospel that saves us and to know better the Savior who frees us, it would be a hard letter and yet it would be a hopeful letter. It would be a difficult read, and yet it would be difficult to put down. It would expose our sins, but it would also make known our Savior. And it would be transforming. And that's what I'm hoping for as we study this letter to the Galatians over the coming year, because Paul is writing to us. And at times it will be difficult, but if we read with humility and faith, we will never be the same. Will you pray with me? Dylan, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and the opportunity that we have, Lord, to consider the gospel of our Savior. And we confess, Lord, so easily we hold the false gospels, but I pray that for each one of us this morning that we would know the real gospel. And as we study this letter over the coming year, Lord, at times it will be hard, but give us the humility that will allow it to transform our lives. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.